Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart welcoming you back here at the end of the week for another weekly market recap with my good friend Lance Roberts. Hey Lance, how you doing? Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. Hey, I've got a good theme for this week. Um, it's a gift that I'm going to try to put up here. It's about a sheep that's stuck in a ditch and he gets pulled out of the ditch and he runs off in euphoria only to just fall right back and get wedged in another ditch. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much that pretty much sums it up. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, look, um, I'm going to I'm going to actually let you kind of explain to folks what happened here. But we we more or less round trip this week. Uh, we were coming off a week last week where things had gotten really oversold. It was end of quarter. So there had been a bunch of portfolio rebalancing and stuff like that that was affecting stock prices. So you had, you know, funds able to start kind of buying this week. At the same time, we had the the Bank of England, you know, panic rescue last week. And folks were thinking, oh, maybe that means the Fed's going to pivot soon. Uh, but clearly, whatever euphoria kicked this week off, and there was a ton in the first two days, it's gone, it seems, right now. Well, maybe. Um, you know, we'll have to, you know, we'll kind of evaluate what the weekly data looks like at the end of the day. Um, you know, as we do, we'll do our work tomorrow in our newsletter and kind of evaluate what the week looks like. Um, but yeah, but, you know, clearly it's not been a great week. You know, 6.3% advance in the first two days of the week. That was awesome. Um, lots of oversold conditions. Um, and then on, on Friday, you give you give up a big chunk of that on, on Friday due to a stronger, well, and again, it was a stronger than expected employment report, but it wasn't fantastic, right? So, but again, what this all kind of led into was, well, the Fed's going to keep hiking rates. Odds of a 75 basis point rate hike for November is now pretty much baked into the cake. Now, having said that, we have CPI on Wednesday. So CPI next week is expected to come in up 0.1 of 1%. Now, if that is the case, CPI will have a seven handle on it down from eight. So, you know, and if for some reason, and again, house prices are going to start to show up in the inflation data. We've had lower oil prices over the last few months. That's likely to show up as well, even though oil kind of rebounded here lately. Um, we're looking at lagging inflationary data. So there's a real possibility that we might get a zero print or even a negative 0.1% print. And then all of a sudden markets are back off to the move. We haven't resolved the oversold condition. Sentiment is still, is still extremely bearish. There's a lot of offside positioning still in the markets. Uh, systemic traders are exceptionally light on their market weights as well. So all it's going to take is one piece of good news and we're going to have another you know, kind of rally like we saw back in June. Uh, and uh, July and August. Now, remember, if you go back to the June bottom, we were talking about the exact same thing back in June. Super negative sentiment, extremely bearish. Everything looked like crap. The world's coming to an end. And then you had a 17% advance, but it wasn't straight off the low. The market rallied, gave up most of the rally, rallied again, gave up a big chunk of it, and then finally took off after about three weeks of, uh, about uh, sorry, about two weeks of consolidation action. And that's not surprising. We saw a big rally on Monday, Tuesday, a lot of trap longs in the market going, thank God I'm out. So they've been doing some selling today. But uh, again, I think what you're going to wind up seeing here is that oversold condition, that very negative sentiment play off into any type of good news here will spark a decent rally. Okay. And that's really important for, for folks to, to note here, because I think it's a simple way to look at this is, hey, the market uh, tried to find a sustainable bottom, but but that launch attempt failed and and maybe we're poised to roll over from here you're saying ah don't 
don't assume that fast here. You know, this this actually is not uncommon. We might even have another failed attempt, but but the third time might be the trick, like it was back in June. Um, okay, uh, let's I, so let's dive into jobs in just a second because that was the big data release this week. Um, in addition to other Fed speakers that were out there saying. Folks, we're not pivoting, right? So, I mean, the Fed was really trying to uh, disabuse the market of that that hope as well. Um, but if CPI comes in as you think it may next week, it's so interesting to me. You've you've got so much of the market. We've talked about the only real bull case for the market is the fact that everyone's counting on a Fed pivot, right? And they kind of have two hopes around it. <laughs> One is either that inflation's going to start coming down and they'll say oh that means the fed can stop hiking sooner so let's front run that and and you know plan that the fed's going to stop tightening then on the other hand they're like oh no something's going to break and that's going to force the fed to pivot right so they yes. kind of have this like best of both worlds worst of both worlds you know expectations at the same time yeah. um you know i'm just curious like uh uh, and, and obviously, I think if the Fed, you know, does what the Fed's going to say, these guys are going to be disappointed either way, or at least until truly something breaks. But but then again, you and I have talked about something breaks. That's probably going to be for really bad reasons that probably yeah. aren't going to be bullish for stocks anyway. So it it feels like the these folks that are really placing all their hopes on on uh, on a pivot may be disappointed in one of several ways. Either they might not get it anytime you know, when they want to get it. And then secondly, if they do get it, it might not play out the way that they want. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. And, and, you know, one of the things and like we were talking about inflation a second ago, it, you know, inflation normally prints now outside of what we saw over the last couple of years because of monetary interventions. If you go back historically, month over month changes in inflation run somewhere between a 0.1% increase and a 0.3. So just average that to 0.2. Just say we kind of get back to normal inflationary trends on a month over month basis now that a lot of this liquidity is kind of flushed through the system. And we just print 0.2% growth in inflation every month. If that's the case, inflation will be back to the Fed's 2% target in June, July of next year, roughly, mm -hmm. be close. Um, you know, so again, you know, we're about to, and this is because, and that's only because of the fact that starting in November, December, January, February, March, you're starting to compare inflation to year-over-year -year prints where we were printing north of 1% in inflation, right? So we had 0 0.6, 0 0 0.8, 0 0.8, 1, 1.3, 1.2, 1.4, right? So all of a sudden, you have these big jumps in inflation. So when we do those year-over-year -year comparisons, and this is how we measure inflation, you know, what is it now versus this time last year? You're going to see a very sharp drop in inflation. And this is going to put the Fed into a real interesting position, right? So, you know, they're hiking rates fairly, very aggressively here. And the problem is, is that economic data is clearly, clearly slowing, right? If you take a look, even in the jobs report today, right? We hired 263,000 or whatever it was in the jobs report. I forget what the exact number was. Um, but, you know, that rate of hiring is slowing and we're starting to see it deteriorate in some of the, the, the bigger areas of, of wage increases. Like a lot of this was leisure hospitality, exactly what you would expect for back to school shopping season, right? So, right. You know, and so exactly what you, you we saw hiring in there, th those jobs will come and go fairly quickly. And, and while everybody's looking at employment, it's very important to remember that employment changes on a dime. And there was a very interesting study out 
early this week or last week. I can't remember. It was either late last week or early this week. Anyway, a study by KPMG of CEOs and more than like almost 60% of the CEOs that they surveyed, of course, KPMG is a big accounting firm, et cetera. And so they interviewed their clients who are big Fortune 500 companies and, and basically asked them, you know, what are they doing with employment? Over 50%, of almost 60% of the CEOs they surveyed said they will be terminating employees over the next six months. And they're going to be starting with the work at homers, right? So if you work at home, you're going to be the first one on the list to go. Because don't if you're working at home, I don't need you really. You know, you're kind of taking up space on the payroll budget. People that come into the office will probably keep their job. But the point is, is this, is that not gradually go down, right? You, when you go look at employment history and you look at the unemployment rate, it doesn't gradually start to increase, right? You don't have a slow ramp up in unemployment. It's vertical spikes. You know, you get down to these record lows of unemployment. Everybody's like, yay, the economy's so strong. And then next month, you've laid off 5 million workers type thing, right? And you have these very big jumps in, um, you know, unemployment. And, and, And that's the thing they miss. And that's where that something breaks that the Fed goes too far. Yeah, that's a great point, Lance. And um, as, as you and I have long talked about, that um, uh, employers are slow to hire, slow to fire, right? So so layoffs tend to be kind of a capitulation event, mm-hmm. right? Where the firms are doing everything they can to not have to shed bodies, at least in mass. Um, but then they get to a point where it becomes just a matter of survival for them. And they say, okay, we just got to start dumping them. And, and that tends to be correlated. In other words, if one company's doing it, it's probably doing it for macro reasons um, that other companies are having to make the same decisions at roughly the same times. And that's why you see these big spikes, right? And they, they tend to always take the system, but particularly central planners like the Fed by surprise, because of course they're looking at lagging data, right? Well, another thing too is, is, you know, again, kind of go through the order of magnitude on employment. Just remind me um, here in a second, because something happened in September and we've had two companies now come out and report this. And I think it's very telling about where we're about to be. But before we get there, the the issue is, you know, employment, like you said, companies are slow to hire and slow to fire. Why? Well, first of all, employees are the most expensive component of any business, right? Because it's not just the salary, it's the payroll, it's the benefits, it's all the other stuff, got to provide them an office computer, all these type of things, right? So, you know, whatever the salary is, and this is one of the big fallacies about paying somebody $15 an hour, it's not just $15 an hour, you need to tack on about 30% or so on every salary to cover you know, tax, payroll taxes, social security taxes, you know, um, you know, the computer, the office space, the benefits, all that other stuff, right? That's all Yeah. Yeah. So that workman's comp, that's all on top of that salary. So, you know, I'm going to pay Adam a hundred thousand dollars a year. Well, that's not very fair. He works really hard. Well, it's actually cost me 130, right? And just, you know, you you gotta, we don't think about things that way, but for a business, that's very important. And, and payroll is right up there at the top of the list in terms of expenses. So, but here's the thing about employees. Adam's a really good worker, right? We Everybody loves Adam. We got to keep Adam on the payroll. And so we're going to do everything we can first because, you know, terminating Adam is a, is a very, you know, very tough issue because he's a great worker. And if I terminate him, he's going to get a job probably with one of my competitors. So I don't want to get rid of Adam, right? So I'm going to hang on to Adam as long as I can. 
what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to cut back on other stuff first, right? So I'm going to cut back on travel. I'm going to cut back on corporate parties. I'm going to cut back on that. I'm going to cut back on R&D and CapEx, uh, capital expenditures. Take a look at what's happening at capital expenditures. Those are dropping like a rock right now. So in other words, companies are already going through that process of cutting all their other expenses to the bone. And then when I can't cut those other expenses in order to maintain corporate profitability, we all love Adam, but Adam's got to go, <laughs> right? And, and again, you don't, you don't fire your best performers ever, right? So your, your best workers, Adam's actually got a job for life, right? Because he's the top performer. So we'll never fire Adam, but we'll fire everybody else in the firm and we'll keep Adam. And this is why, you know, all these, you know, these young people that are demanding work from home and all that, it all sounds fine and dandy. That's not what corporations want because it's reduced productivity when you work at home. They want you in the office where productivity is higher and I'm getting more bang for my buck, what they're paying. So all those work from homers, they'll go first. And then I'm going to start trimming down all my quote unquote. And this is what I always love about government, uh, government employment. Remember when we go through government layoffs, they say, well, we're uh, not, uh, you know, like we have a budget, you know, budget issue and we can't pass a budget. So we have a government shutdown. We always lay off the 900,000 non-essential workers, you know, if you're labeled non-essential, there's a problem right there. <laughs> um, but you need to look at your job, right? You look at your job at work and you say, am I an essential worker? Because this is how the companies are going to look at you, right? Nobody can do Adam's job. Adam's the only guy that can do his job. But Adam's got four people with him that, you know, Adam can do part of their job too. So we're going to get rid of two of those guys because they're non-essential. And that's, and, and that's about to what's going to happen here pretty soon is that, that companies are about to, they've already gone through hiring freezes. We've talked about that before. Um, they've already started kind of, you know, we, we're seeing um, people that are on jobless claims. Uh, so there's two types of jobless claims. You have your initial claim, which is you've been terminated or fired for some reason, right? You can't make a jobless claim if you quit. Right. You have to be fired or laid off to, to go make an initial claim. So that's people filing for, for jobless uh, benefits the first time. Then you have continuing claims. Continuing claims have been creeping up. Now, what does that mean? What that means is, is that people that are losing their job are staying on unemployment longer. So that what that means is companies aren't hiring those individuals back. Right, It's getting harder for them to find a job. Yeah. Correct. And so what's going to happen here very shortly is we're going to migrate from cost cutting to hiring freezes determinations and those are coming and it's just a function when we get there okay yeah and that's um uh you know it, it it's in, in some ways you were talking about you know okay so with all these signs the economy is slowing down and yet uh we have this robust jobs report um and the unemployment rate comes down right <laughs> uh and so it's it's understandably hard i think for the average person to kind of square those two circles you know in their mind and I think what you're saying is, and I'm right on the same page with you, is, is the, the economy is going to win here, right? And um, you and I have talked in the past about a lot of the suspicions that we and many other people have about the payrolls data here. Um, so, but what's interesting is, is when that question was asked today in the media of, hey, how come unemployment rates coming down if the economy is kind of shaky? Um, or, or, or less with the economy being shaky, but more with the Fed hiking and tightening trying to make the cool the economy off the response that has been oh well you know there's a delay to fed policy and we just haven't seen it yet and you and i have talked about this that there is a delay for fed policy 
So if they're saying, you know, we really haven't seen a cooling off in the jobs market yet caused by the Fed's uh, tightening activities, well, the Fed has been hiking rates since February. So we've talked about kind of this rolling thunder that that keeps barreling in from all the previous rate hikes that the Fed has done. So if we haven't truly felt that in the employment market yet, we've got, is that eight months of of rolling thunder headed our way? So let's say we start seeing the the jobs market buckle like you think we're going to. It's going to get hit again and again and again. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be a back alley beating where the guys on the ground and they just keep kicking him. So let's be generous, right? And let's say that the market right now is already feeling, and we're seeing this. And I said, I said, remind me about the two companies. So AMD just announced overnight um, a big drop in corporate profits uh, going for their, their profit margin shrank from like- their, their revenue outlook and their profit margin outlook, right. yes. So now what's interesting is, is just a month ago, they made that same, gu- they made guidance that was you know already out there. And they said, hey, our, our, our profit margin would be 54%. In a month, that, that profit margin went from 54 to 50. FedEx just did exactly the same thing again. And, and the point about this is that, folks, you need to be paying attention to what's going on here. What these companies are telling you that in the month of September, the economy basically crashed and we just haven't seen it yet. It's coming. And all these rate hikes. So let's be generous. And let's say that the rate hike in March, that first quarter point, let's say that's in the economy now. It's probably early, but let's say it's already in the economy. Let's give the 50 basis point hike that came after that. It's in the economy. So 75 basis points of hikes, they're in the economy. They're accounted for the market and the economy have already counted to that. Okay, there's still four, because in November, they're expecting 75 basis points. There'll be four 75 basis point rate hikes that are not factored into the economy or the data yet because of the lag effect. So that's that's 3% rate increases that have not impacted the economy. And yet now you've already got companies going, they're slashing profit margins. Fourth quarter is gonna be very telling. We're gonna start next week on earnings. Pay attention, it doesn't matter what the companies report. Um, pay attention to what they say their about the corporate profit margins or forecasts. That's what's gonna matter. And you know, there's, there's uh, you know, there, I think there's gonna be some very interesting stories coming out of that about the economy is slowing. There's concern about you know, what's coming down the pipeline. And, you know, the, the big risk here is, again, everybody's, you know, every, every, and even my partner, Michael Leibowitz, he's like, man, the Fed's going to hike until they, they bring down inflation to 2%. And that's all that matters. You know, that may be the case. But, you know, when you crack something in the economy, it's going to get bad. It'll get bad pretty quick. And, and that's where, you know, I think you start seeing the Fed really kind of come off that idea. All right. So I'm, I'm a little suspicious that you somehow took a sneak peek at my notes before we hopped on here because you took this exactly you, where yeah, I, I did actually you got up to go to the bathroom and I looked and, and you, there we go great all right um so um but this is exactly where I was going to take it literally using FedEx and AMD uh, as the examples um so all right so we have well okay so the, the data that we're looking at if we look at the companies that are actually out there you know part of the economy they're they're basically saying you're right that, that things are slowing down super fast and, and that September was really bad. So that's what AMD said. They basically said, look, there's been a major slowdown in the economy since we gave our last guidance, which was also a downgrade, by the way. Um, FedEx, which also uh, two weeks ago we talked about it on this program, where they said, hey, look, we 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 have to bring down our guidance. We see us heading into a global economy. 
they just pre-announced even worse guidance. So here's the quote from the executives there. We expect there to be downward adjustments to volume forecasts. These changes will reflect the latest information from customers about how they anticipate current conditions uh, and are likely to they are likely to decrease their volumes this holiday season. So they're basically saying, hey, look, folks, it's not going to be a fun holiday. Like we're already seeing all of our customers basically tell us they're going to be shipping a lot less. If you look at global uh, container shipping rates, they're plummeting from their pandemic highs. Um, they're not quite back down yet to where they were pre-COVID, but they are plunging there like a rock. So if you look at rate of change, which you and I talk a lot about, Lance, I mean, it just shows a, a super sharp deceleration. Um, I just did a, 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 a interview this week with Bill Fleckenstein. Um, in fact, the video that launched today was titled, It's Gonna Get Ugly. Um, Bill is saying that he expects this earnings season uh, to be a pretty gruesome one for the reasons we're talking about here. And, you know, Bill got famous initially by um, being a, a very successful short seller. He hasn't been shorting the market for the past couple of years because he just said, look, the way that, you know, it's it sort of eternally propped up here, it's not a it's not a shorting market. I'm kind of retired from shorting. Well, he's now back shorting at a, a magnitude that he hasn't been doing for years, right, which is a strong, you know, vote of, of confidence on his part that, that things are going to get worse from here. Um, I just recorded an interview about an hour before this about the number of zombie companies uh, out there and their proliferation and, and, and the vulnerability that they have to slowing economy, compressing margins, but also the, the, the rising cost of capital. So look, there's so many reasons to be saying, look, it looks like the economy in front of our eyes is buckling here. And yet we've got this strong, robust jobs report that just came out. And if I look at Atlanta Fed GDP now, it's now been revised up to 2.9% for Q3. Yeah. <laughs> so if people are just looking at the data that the government's putting out, they're like, everything seems great. In fact, it looks like it's getting better even, where everybody who has you know a tangible connection to the real economy is saying, guys, this is turning into a horror show. Yeah. Well, again, it's it, the, the difference is, you know, it's kind of like this, right? You, you know, you're driving down the road in a car and you take your you take your hands off the steering wheel. And, you know, for a little while, the car will keep going straight, right? So everything's fine, right? Nothing to worry about. It's like these people that drive Teslas on autopilot. Everything's fine until the road turns left, right? Or turns right. And, and all of a sudden, you've got big problems. And this is the problem, the real-time data that you're, what we're talking about, AMD, FedEx, you know, all these other things, coming earnings reports, et cetera. That's all telling you that things are slowing down markedly. Unfortunately, all the other data that everybody else is talking about, employment, you know, GDP, et cetera, that's all lagging data. And that's all data that's subject to massive revisions. We're going to see, I will bet you, you know, if you want to bet dinner somewhere, we can do this. But I will bet, so with, with employment data, GDP data, et cetera, we revise that every year. And then every three years, we do a big, massive revision. I will almost bet you that next year when we revise this employment data, it's going to be a horror show. Uh, you know, it'll be like, oh, yeah, remember a year ago where we were doing 283,000 jobs a month or whatever? It's actually losing 100,000 jobs a month, you know, whatever. Um, and that's not surprising because, by the way, that always happens prior to midterms. So, you know, after the midterm election cycle is over, we get the revised data and it's markedly worse than it was. Right. Although window dressing happens before yeah. and then they take it away later. And, yeah. And look, By the I'm way, not, I'm not making that bet with you. Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just, you know, I, I just think that, you know, we're going to find out that things are a lot worse than they actually seem. 
And, you know, look, the market is a good forecaster, right? You know, you can bang the market for a lot of things, but one thing the market does do well is it sniffs out, you know, kind of the real-time data. And the market's telling you there's problems in, in, uh, in the economy. So, you know, the market's going to bottom before the economic data. So remember that, right? So if you're going, hey, this market's going to, you know, just keep getting worse and keep getting worse. Well, the question you have to ask yourself is, 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 the, is the economic data going to get markedly worse? I mean, if you take a look at ISM and, and you know, uh, consumer confidence, a lot, of these, a lot of this stuff is, you know, in recession. The NFIB is a good example. I mean, that stuff's in recessionary territory already. So the question is, is how much worse can it get? And I suspect it can get worse, right? I'm not saying it won't. But you've got to start asking the question, how much is the market already priced in? And how much more is there left to go before the market starts saying, hey, look, you know, we've priced in a lot of this stuff and, you know, this is going to get better down the road. And I want to start trying to buy some stuff now. AMD is a great example of this. We've been nibbling at AMD now for the last six months. We started out with a really, really small position. And every time this thing gets monkey hammered, we buy a little bit more of it. Here's a high growth company in a high growth area that trades at 13 times P.E. I'll buy that stock all day long as long as you're willing to hold it for you know a year. Because in a year from now, you'll be glad you did. Intel, right. Intel is every you go into any business, right? All their the the 99.9 percent .9 of businesses. I'm just making up the I'm making up the stat, but it's high. Hmm. You 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 don't walk into a corporation and see Macs sitting on every desktop. You see PCs and Virtually all those PCs are driven by Intel computers, uh, Intel chips. So here's the stock trading at basically seven times earnings and has a huge yield on it right now, too. So, you know, there are some stocks. And again, you know, you've got to be careful. You got to look past the market and start. And, and this is that that kind of once in a lifetime opportunity where you start looking at stocks that are that are beaten down 60, 70, 80 percent. And you know, start finding some real value. Now, you may have to hold it here for a bit. It's not gonna, it's not gonna go running off to the moon tomorrow uh, if you're in the middle of a bear market. But these are those type of stocks that you want to start building positions in over time, because when we do come out of this, and we will come out of this eventually. You know, this is the, you know, look, you can be as doom and gloom as you want, but you know, at the end of the day, this ends and we get back into a cycle. Is it because the Fed is you know, doing QE and dropping rates to zero? Maybe. Is it just because we go through an economic recession and we start to grow again? Yeah, that's going to happen. You know, so so again, these are those, those gifted opportunities that you get to buy stuff cheap that you wish you had, you know, the whole way up. Everybody's going, man, I wish I could buy these stocks cheaper, but I got to be in. Well, now for the first time in a decade, you can buy some stuff that's really cheap, but you've got to be willing to nut up and do it. You got to be willing to sit on it for a while. That's a great point. I, I, I just I, I want to underscore this because I think this is the main theme of of at least this this week's video is very challenging time right now to be an investor. Uh, you are going to have signals that are going to be at cross currents. We just talked about a bunch here. Right. But like um, uh, while we think that there may be further shoes to drop in the short term, strong jobs numbers, GDP looks good. Um, and to your point earlier, Lance, we might see a rebound in the markets from here, right? Yeah. So you've really got to do your homework uh, to not get um, deceived by a lot of the headline data that's out there, right? So that, that's, that's point one. Second is, is you've really got to start doing your diligence on, you know, when 
when to be out and when to be in um, and to, to take advantage of the emerging opportunities, especially if this continues to, to devolve from here in terms of you know, asset prices and how the market performs. Um, you have to start taking positions uh, and getting in. Um, and by definition, you're not going to catch the bottom uh, perfectly. And so by definition, you have to be prepared to lose money for for some period of time in that investment. And to your point, as long as you're committed to, to holding it long enough to where the recovery happens, well, then you've gotten in at the right time and, and you're going to reap the rewards from that. But you have to have the stomach to be able to go in then. Otherwise, you're just going to have to wait until you know the recovery is plain to everybody and then you'll have missed a good chunk of the upswing, right? Yeah, right. It's like, you know, use AMD as a good example. So that stock's down like 12, 13% today. All they did was revise their profit margin down from 54% to 50%. Think about that for just a moment. Here's a company trading at 13 times valuations with a 50% profit margin. Right. Only in your dreams can you buy a company with a 50% profit margin trading at a 13 PE. You know, that's, you know, those are the type of, you know, if this was a company that, that you know, revised their guidance down from 10% to 5% on profit margins, that's a very different story. But, you know, 54 to 50%, you take 13% off the stock. You know, that's, that's just basically what happens when you have this, you know, this kind of just this liquidation in the markets. And that's what's going on right now. Yeah, um, though we should be super clear to say, look, if if the if the overall market itself still has a fair amount more to go as this bear market potentially plays out, doesn't mean that AMD couldn't get a lot more cheaper, right? right? So you, you just have to be mentally prepared for this, right? So, but no, absolutely, AMD could get cheaper here, and and this is why I was talking about. So we've been built, we've been nibbling at this company, right? We've been buying very small fractional positions. In AMD, it's it's it's, it's we we've made a couple of purchases. It makes up a total of one percent of our portfolio. It's very small. Our normal position size can be up to five percent. So you know we're at one percent. So we have a very underweight position, you know, in in AMD. And I'm willing to work through that, right? So it can go down a little bit more, and I'll buy another half percent. I'll make it one and a half, and eventually it'll be two percent. And when we start to come out the other side, it'll be three, four, five percent of this. So, but but again, you know, this is you know. These are the challenges of portfolio management. And again, we, you know, you've got to be careful because it's really easy to swept up. So the market's going down and you know, I just want to be out. That's fine. You can be out, right? That's completely okay. And we've talked about that last week. You know, if this market's too challenging for you, just get out, right? The challenge is also going to be to get back in though. And when the market does start to recover, it's going to be recovering at the worst possible time. You're going to like, there is no way this market's going to rally. This is another bear market rally that's going to fail. And then the market's going to keep going. And it's like, well, it's going to fail, right? The economy's still terrible and the market's going to keep going. And then the economy will start to get better. And you're like, damn, I missed the bottom. Right. And, and, and that's going to be the challenge for investors. I have a lot, I have a lot of people emails like, I'm out. I'm just all on T-bills. That's fine. No problem with that because you're getting three, 4% on your T-bills. Question is, is when are you going to get back in? And yeah. you'll be way too late to the game by the time that happens. And look, you know, portfolio management is not not a not a game of perfection. It's not a it's not trying to be all in at the right time and all out at the right time. I mean, we've talked about before, you know, investing is like a game of football. It's just a, a game of inches, and you're making small moves at times to try to to capture what's happening in the markets. And right now. The market is so extremely bearish 
that from a contrarian basis that's bullish for a rally. And I'm not saying that the bottom of the market's in at all, but you're so extremely bearish, you're so blown out on, on, on a lot of these downside metrics. This was exactly what we were talking about back in June. Market was extremely bearish. Everybody was bearish. The world's coming to an end. And we were saying, look, this is, this is, you can go pull the video back up from June. Um, and we were saying exactly the same thing that we're going to have a counter trend rally. And it took a little bit of time to get going. But then you have that 17% rally in June, June, July, and, and half of August. Then we gave it all back up again. Um, the point is, is that you may not get it a 17% rally, but you're likely going to get some type of rally here. Most likely, there's no guarantee of this, <laughs> right? There's no guarantees in investing. If there were, everybody'd be rich, right? Um, but technically, when things are this oversold and this beaten up, you typically get some type of rally. It may have fits and starts. But again, one piece of good news, if inflation comes in next week much weaker than expected, or even moderately weaker than expected, I suspect you're going to have a, a pretty good counter trend rally. Why? Is because you've got all this money pinned up on the short side of the market. You've got, you know, Bill Fleck and see, I'm super short the market. Markets love that because when markets start to run in the other direction, they all have to cover. And that pushes stock prices up in the other direction. This is why being a short seller is always very difficult for people. Right. Which Bill is the first first guy to say that to, um, uh, or say that to yeah. viewers. Um, very difficult. All right. Uh, and, and you just did a good job of, of really explaining you know, why we, on this channel, we always tell people to consider working with a professional financial advisor if they're not already highly experienced investing in these type of markets, which I think few people are, um, because you're, you're out there playing that game of um, probabilities and, 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 and the, the, the gardening that you talk about. Right. Um, that's really what you're doing is, is, is you're you're you know, getting a good advisor is you are reducing the risk of what you just said earlier, which is being out is fine, right? But getting in after that is really hard. And so the one of the big roles the advisor is playing is it's it's helping you get in in a responsible way where you're, you know, mitigating risk, but you're you're giving yourself the opportunity to to ride the recovery once it arrives. Okay. So you definitely seem like you were peeking at my notes again because you went to treasuries. Um so right before we hopped on here, I looked, the one-year U.S. Treasury right now is yielding 4.27%, which is amazing for people that have been, you know, dealing with, you know, sub 1%, you know, yields uh, for many of the past years, right? So um, it's a whole new game. Uh, you know, there, there now is an alternative to stocks. Uh, there is a place where you can kind of hide out and park your money and get a return. Now, granted, it's still a negative real return based upon where inflation is, but we just said we think inflation's coming down. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm going to put up a chart here, which shows that um, foreigners, the Federal Reserve and investment funds have been shedding treasuries. This is from uh, Oxford Economics and the Federal Reserve. And it shows the past couple of quarters um, the there've been net sales of treasuries from many of the players here. Um, that's obviously probably contributing to rates going up here. Um, so, you know, you look at a data series like that and you say, okay, well, at some point that will reverse, right? Mm -hmm. Where it, not saying it's going to happen immediately, but at some point, you know, they'll go back to being net buyers. Um, and looking at how attractive the, the rates are right now, especially in such an uncertain world, you know, I'm looking at this and saying, this might be a good time to buy treasuries um, 
of any duration, uh, but let's even just say the small, shorter ones, uh, lock yourself in a good rate. It's safe. You know, it, it, it's uh, guaranteed by the government here. And then if there's a swing back, uh, in other words, where um, uh, rates come down again, well, you can either hold and enjoy the the nice, you know, relatively uh, superior returns, or you can sell these things in the open market and make a profit. So, I mean, treasuries are looking pretty good right now, I think. Yeah. No, they are. And, it's, you know, it's interesting, you know, nobody wants to buy stuff in a bear market, right? And bonds have had one of the biggest bear markets since the 1800s, right? So, you know, this, but this is always the psychology of the market. You don't want to buy stocks when they're bear markets. You don't want to buy stock, bonds when they're in a bear market. Nobody wants to buy anything in, a, in, in the market. And this is what Bob Farrell says, investors buy the most at the bottom and, and sorry, buy the most at the top and the least at the bottom. Right. Uh, we always do the opposite of what we should do. Um, but we forget about you know, the reality is that these things do, you know, provide a decent rate of return. And, and you know, this is always the challenge. And this is going to be the challenge going forward as well, is that, you know, become net bonds and that breaks something. And it's just a function of time until these rate hikes break something. We've already seen it happening in other parts of the world. It's, you know, it's a bit naive that the Fed thinks that this isn't going to come home to roost at some point, particularly and we have so many different areas. You, you picked on zombie companies a few minutes ago. Um, you know, that's a hugely risky area of the markets. Those companies are dependent upon low rates to refinance their debt just to pay the interest carry on the of the debt they already have outstanding. That's why they're called zombies. You know, they need shit, they need debt just to survive, right? That's the that's the whole game for these companies. Um, you know, at some point, if those start to break, you're gonna have you know, a problem in the economy. And it's just, and, and that's just almost a function of time now between what the Fed's doing. And I get what the Fed's trying to do, but, you know, uh, you know, this, this, you know, this focus on inflation they have. And, and again, we talked about this before, inflation is going to take care of itself. It's not going to last forever because that monetary stimulus is slowly working its way through the market and is coming out the other side. And consumption is already slowing down. You're already starting to see you know, people, you know, from a whole variety of statistics, you know, struggling to kind of make ends meet. There was a survey out last week, I think it was on CNBC, talking about investors or, you know, individuals are suffering from recession fatigue. And we're not even technically in a recession, right? <laughs> you know, GDP is going to be for the third quarter, it's going to be a 2% plus, you know, print most likely. And, you know, but people, you know, that's a very, you know, while the economic stats may say one thing, what consumers are dealing with, and it's an entirely different, you know, matter altogether. Yeah, um, and that's so funny about recession fatigue. Yeah, like I mean, sadly, folks, you know, we we, we might be just seeing the teams switch sides of the field after the first inning here. Right? I mean, we, yeah. we could have a lot longer of this thing to go. And actually, on that point, so again, you're you're looking at my notes. Um, I've got our recession watch section here right now. And uh, there was a, a piece put out um, by an analyst named Simon White that had some great charts in it. Um, so let me put them up here. Uh, first one here is uh, basically making the point here that that earnings really don't start plunging until the recession is like really underway, uh, you know, fully. Um, and then after that, when they when they when they start to decline, um, they decline through the recession, and the median recession length is 39 weeks long, right? So we haven't really seen earnings correct materially here yet. And 
and and so let's let's say we're right at that point where they are. Let's use AMD and FedEx now as saying, okay, this is the kickoff of 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 you know earnings getting clobbered. Well, if we have a median length recession ahead of us, it's 39 weeks from now. If people are getting recession fatigue now, imagine how they're going to feel after the end of that. No, it, it, no, it's very true. I mean, this is you know this is the the issue again. You know, and and the, my point about that is is that if consumers are dealing with a recession fatigue now, and let's just assume that Simon's white, Simon's right, and you know we got 39 weeks or some number ahead of us of of an actual recession, we actually get there. Well, what is a recession? A recession is a negative growth of consumption, basically, right? So economic activity is growing at a negative rate. That's a recession. 70% of, of, of economic activity is consumption. By the way, that, so let's talk about the GDP now for just a good example of the, the economic data versus reality. Why did GDP now surge so much? Right. And we were at 0.5 uh, going. Yeah, I think we got down to 0.3 at one point. Maybe maybe 0.3. Um, right towards the end of September. Then then in the last three days of September, it went from 0.3 to 2.9. A big chunk of that increase was a shrinkage of the trade deficit. Uh, if you look at the GDP calculation, it's consumption, government, net exports. That's what makes up your GDP calculation, right? So when you take a look at net exports, what that says is, is that there's a whole lot less activity happening overseas. In other words, they're buying less of our stuff. Right. That's shrinking that trade deficit. That Okay, now think about that for a moment. We got people overseas buying less stuff from us. Okay, and that's somehow a positive for our economic growth. Put that math together for a second. Yeah. 40% of corporate revenues come from international sales. And this is what FedEx is telling you, right? They're telling you, hey, I got a global recession going on. Shipping volumes are dropping. You know, FedEx is global, right? They just don't ship stuff in the US or everywhere. So this is not actual, even though GDP is going to come in at 2.9, it's not really a great economic number. Spending helped uh, in that increase. And, and again, not surprising, you had two negative quarters in the first year. People had some pent-up demand back to school. Not surprising that you saw a little bit of a pickup in, in personal consumption expenditures. But again, a big chunk of that increase came out of the, the narrowing of the trade deficit. All so right, not, so my point is, it's not as bullish as, as everything appears. Right, right. right. Back, back to our point of... of um, you really have to be paying attention here, folks, because a lot of the kind of headline numbers that you're going to see in the media may be very deceptive in terms of what, what the reality is in the ground. All right. Two, two more charts here um, from Simon. By the way, I think I forgot to mention he's from Bloomberg. Um, this one shows that uh, uh, it shows the Philadelphia Fed State Coincident Diffusion Index. Um, basically, it's, it's showing that uh, it's dropped to a level that we've only seen prior to recessions. So it's just one of the many, you know, charts we put out here parade that shows that, hey, you know, we're seeing things that look like what you see when you're heading into a recession. Uh, this last one, though, is is quite interesting. Um, it's uh, that payrolls growth is set to drop sharply in the coming months and soon contract. Um, it shows how tightly correlated it is with the conference board U.S. leading index. Um, which basically is pushed forward six months. So if you look at that chart here, 
um, you see that that has already gone negative and that payrolls themselves, payroll growth itself, uh, if it maintains the the correlation which it has through this entire, you know, whatever it is, 45-year data set, um, it's likely going to contract soon okay. too. So, you know, again, we're just seeing all sorts of signs here, folks, that um, recession is 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 underway, on the way, underway. Um, and, you know, I think from a, I'm going to speak for you, Lance, and then you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but really all we're trying to do through these weekly uh, uh, videos here is just to help you understand sort of where we are in the story. And it seems like we are now getting further along in the story where a lot of the concerns that we were raising kind of academically at the beginning of the year, we're now being able to see with increasing clarity. And we've got a couple of events coming up here that could accelerate um, the decline if indeed there's going to be a continued decline here. One is going to be earnings seasons because forward earnings estimates are still I think kind of criminally rosy <laughs> uh, for which analysts uh, are using to justify current stock price forecasts. Uh, and when that confidence breaks and those gets those get written down, I think that's going to be a step change uh, in, in the markets. And increasingly what we're seeing here in real time in the near term, AMD, FedEx, et cetera, people that are super close to the heartbeat of the global economy, they're now waving, waving really big red flags to say, hey, we're seeing like you know, I don't want to use the word crisis, but I mean, we're, we're seeing like very scary slowdown here now. So again, it's not, hey, we're seeing some signs or we think this might happen. They're kind of calling a real-time emergency now. So okay. uh, as we talked about a lot of the stuff, there's delays that come into play. There's deliberate um, uh, goosing of some of the numbers, particularly maybe before an election or whatever. But you should be looking at all this, and if you if you're not fully bought into the fact that um, we're going to have a bad recession or that the markets are going to you know have another down leg, you at least should be putting in the prep to say, okay, if that's going to happen, what's my strategy going to be? Yeah, well, look, and this is what I was going back to. This is what uh, we were talking earlier about. This is that you know the the big risk here is the Fed makes a mistake, which. I think it's increasingly likely, you know, they're hiking rates to combat inflation, but inflation is going to take care of itself. You know, the whole point of a recession is that that's a reduction in consumption, but a reduction in consumption, that's less price, that's less demand, right? So prices come down to, you know, for less demand. It's just a function of how the market works. So inflation is going to come down uh, because you have a recession at some point. The problem is, is, and the risk is the Fed over tightens, as we talked about before, all these lag effects come in. And all of a sudden, they're going to be scrambling on the other side of this going, oh, crap, how do we get ourselves out of this mess that we just created since we just created another mess? Right. <laughs> so, and, and sorry to interrupt. I'll, I'll let you continue here. But yeah, that's right. you that's know, right. for all we know, the Fed has already over tightened. Yeah. Right? It could have over tightened 75, 150 basis points ago. We just don't know. Maybe it's still ahead of us, but but it could be behind us. But to your point, what's likely is they will tighten too much and then realize it. And then the question is just going to be how much total damage that they do that we don't yet know of is going to have to happen first before they're able to dig us out of that hole. Yeah. And, and again, you know, this, and, and then now this goes back to the other conversation, you know, can the Fed go back to QE, right? Or, you know, if they stop QT, quantitative tightening, can they actually go back to QE, right? Can they go back to buying bonds? The answer is sure they can, right? But do they really want to have a $20 trillion balance sheet? 
you know, at some point, when does that become Bank of Japan-ish? And you start having all kinds of problems with the liquidity of your bond market because you own a big chunk of it. You know, there's there's all kinds of consequences to actions. You know, do they cut rates back to zero? Great, they cut rates back to zero. But now what's your next bag of trades, right? You know, at some point, you've got to let the problem resolve itself, which is all the debt. We just have too much debt. We just crossed 31 trillion in, in national debt, right? The you know, it, it's this this all sounds fine and dandy in a vacuum, and we'll just send more checks to households at the problem. But you know, you know, if there's a problem, but at the end of the day, somebody's got to pay pay the bills. And you know, this is the problem we're getting into now. So so this is this is the crux of, of what Lacey Hunt talked about at our recent conference, Lance, that you you attended. And to me, this is this is the part that just makes me kind of want to just step up and go, you know, put my head in the oven, <laughs> which is <laughs> <laughs> Lacey has been a deflationist. I mean, probably nobody has done a, a, a more you know yeoman's job than uh, than Lacey in banging the drum to say, look, we have a problem of too much debt in this country, and it is creating a deflationary vortex that, when combined with our deflationary demographics, are going to trap us in a really long term deflationary funk. And probably funk is probably the nicest word I can come up with it, right? But he said, look, the, 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 the central planners have created a very bad inflation problem, and, and that has to be the first order of business is to get that under control. And the depressing part of that is like, they've got a really big job here to get inflation under control. Maybe they can, maybe they can't. But let's assume that all the focus, all the pain that we're going to have to take in the near term is getting inflation under control. If we do that, once we've done it, we still have this massive deflationary problem of too much debt to deal with, right? So it's like we had a massive, you know, dragon to slay, but another bigger, badder one just showed up, you know, and we got to kill that one first before we go to the other one. I mean, it's it's not no, good. No, it's not good. But look, let's the, you know, I hate to keep picking on AMD and, and FedEx, but let's let's just talk about that from a deflationary standpoint, right? So the Fed's over here worried about this inflation, right? And and this so here's the argument of of all the inflationistas, um, like oh my God, we got this high inflation. If we don't get under control, it's just going to run rampant forever. It's not because in order to have sustained high rates of inflation, you need sustained high rates of what? Economic growth can't have high rates of economic growth unless you have sustained high rates of wages that run above the inflation level which you don't have. And you've also got to have interest rates that are coming up at a level that supports economic activity, but is not crimping economic activity. And you can't do that because there's too much debt, right? So if interest rates come up, I can't, you know, look look what's happening with mortgages, right? Mortgage refi applications, zero. How many people are buying a house? Zero. You know, <laughs> you know I'm not saying it's actually zero, but no, those are coming down quickly. And you're seeing the impact of high rates on the housing market as an example, right? So in other words, I can't afford, because my wages aren't growing, I can't afford to consume because I can't afford, my wages won't keep up with the cost of consumption. And I sure as hell can't afford a higher you know, mortgage payment on my house because I have too much debt already and I can't sustain it. So here's my point about this. See, that's all deflationary. Right. That all extracts demand out of the economy. Now, what is what's my and so again this this whole issue of what the Fed sees and what the inflation and, and inflation needs to see is that we had this economic shutdown so we've got all this demand and we still have supply chain disruptions that may be true for the moment but listen to what is happening with 
AMD, FedEx, others. It's just, those are the two most recent, right? But there's been other companies. And I think we're going to see a lot more during this, this earnings season is that demand is dropping so quickly that demand supply and balance is right. going to solve itself. Right. You're, you're very rapidly. Capacity. Exactly. And now all of a sudden you've got too much capacity, too little demand. That's your recession, by the way. Inflation is going to drop to, to near zero or some level. And, and to about this, where the Fed is, man, I have made a not you know a crucial mistake. The Fed made a mistake, first of all, when we had 2020 and did the economic shutdown and we sent checks to households, the Fed should have hiked rates right then. They should have never done QE, or if they did QE, they should have done QE for like three, four months, make sure the bond market wasn't going to implode, and then stop QE at that point, go to QT. Right. Um, but they should have been hiking rates all in 2020, all in 2021. And the longer you're doing QE, the more you hike rates, right? So you have that liquidity support for the markets and you hike rates into it. The problem is they stayed at that party game way too long. And now they're really stuck trying to get things back into alignment because if this recession is anything like that we think it's going to be, they're going to need to, they're going to need plenty of room between the current Fed funds rate and zero to drop those rates back to zero to try to give some boost to the economic activity. But, but again, as I said before, you know, they're fighting a fight that's already been lost. Yeah. And well, so, all right. away. so on that, let's, 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 let's like cut to the whole heart of everything. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give you, and I, I agree with you that, that, you know, inflation is going to more or less sort of solve itself, right. By you know, a recession is going to, well, remove enough demand that eventually right. it's all going to come down. Yeah, right. This is, this is, this is demographics debt and deflation, right? Yeah. The three. The three. Okay. So now let's, let's say we're through the inflation risk, right. And, and that dragon's dead and we just have the deflation dragon now. Right. Um, so the, 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 the narrative has always been, well, the fed wants inflation, right. It, it, it's a certain amount of inflation because it helps it deal with the, 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 um, but the deflation it helps to deflate away uh, the cost of this this debt pile, right? Um, because there's really two ways in which you can you can deal with a problem of too much debt is you can let the bad debts default, um, or you can increase the currency supply and and pay it all off nominally. But you're you're you know you're you're damaging the purchasing power of your your currency. Um, so. You know what happens because we get out of this, we still have a really bad debt problem. Um, the debt levels are getting to the point where they're increasing. You know, you, you get you get exponential growth beginning to work against you because debt has interest, and that begins to create you know an exponential function. So um, I'm kind of of the school that I think no sitting politician will ever agree to let defaults happen. They just politicians it's anathema to them. They just won't do that on their watch. But we've just gone through this inflationary problem. Is the Fed going to go back to trying to manage a higher inflation, steady high inflation rate to get deal with the uh, debt pile? Like, how the, do you see this resolving? The, 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 the Fed can want anything they want, right? But the question is, is what is the economics going to deliver? And look, you have the lowest birth rate in since 19, since 1942, right? Since World War II, right? right. And to be weird. clear, that's everywhere. It's not yeah, just the West, it's yeah, China, yeah, yeah. Japan. Yeah. It's everywhere, right? People are just not having babies. And, you know, look, and, and look, we can get into some, some anecdotal evidence of this, right? 
And it's interesting because a lot of this ties to the rise of, you know, cell phones and, and, and you know, internet dating and a lot of other <laughs> stuff, right? Uh, but it's interesting, right? You know, you know, you take a look at surveys, um, you know, the younger, the younger millennials and, and Gen Zers, you know, they don't want to get married, right? The, the, the whole idea of marriage has become a bit of a, a, a bit of a taboo thing. And not because they're just against the idea of marriage. There, it's like, I can't afford it, right? And this is Japan's problem. One of Japan's big problems with their demographics is that their, their economy is so weak that, you know, the, the formations of relationships are problematic because, you know, the, the, the guys don't have jobs. And so the women don't want to marry them because they're all living at home with their parents, right? Right. And, 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 and those, are, those are just not good for household formation. And so what do we need in the economy to, to get things to grow? We need household formations and we need people that have babies uh, that creates more consumption. And, that, and, and there's, an old, there's an old saying, if you want a strong economy, have babies. That's it. Um, you know, we're, and, we're, and now, you know, from a social experiment, so to speak, we're kind of piling on to this problem of just, you know, the, the marriage issue. But now we're promoting all these other forms of relationships that don't produce offspring. And again, you, you can have whatever relationship you want. I don't care. But in, in terms of economics and demographics, do these alternative structures provide for population growth? And if they don't provide for population growth, that just adds to the problem of this deflationary drag of demographics. And so we talk about, we just mentioned a moment about the three Ds. You know, what are the three Ds of, of economic uh, prosperity? And you've got to have strong demographics. You've got to have, you know, a, a strong functioning work base, right? You've got to have, you know, people producing goods and services. Take a look at our labor force participation rate. You know, that's at, a, at, that's at the lowest level. And, and you go back and look at labor force participation rate history. It peaked in the late 90s. And through the dot-com crash, labor force participation rate came down. Then it rebounded a little bit after the crash to a peak going into 2007, 2008. Financial crisis reduced it even more. Then we're having a little bit of a bounce, but we're not even, there's a very clear downtrend in labor force participation rates in the US. And in fact, we're back to, to levels of labor force participation we haven't seen since like the late 70s. And you know, back then, labor force participation was going up, not down. <laughs> so, you know, we have, so you don't have the labor force participation, you don't have the demographics, and you have too much damn debt. That's the other problem. You know, back in the 60s, sure, we had 15% interest rates. It wasn't an anathema to the economy because debt to household ratios were like 60% of debt to income. I mean, most people didn't carry outside their mortgage. They had no other debt. Uh, my parents never had a credit card. They paid for everything in cash or a checkbook. Today, the average household debt ratio is like 150%. So, you know, you've got too much debt, poor demographics, Poor economic supports; those are all very deflationary. And the problem for the and this and look and, and here, how do you know you have these deflationary environments? Because you can't get above two percent economic growth since two thousand. We've been running two two and a quarter percent economic growth ever since two thousand. And the reason the Fed's target inflation rate is two percent is because that's all the economy can support. Anything of inflationary above two percent you start creating all kinds of economic problems right. because of too much debt, right? So this is why we're just hoping, praying, right? If we could just get 2% growth, what's the Fed's long-term uh, economic projections for growth and even their own projections? 1.8%. 
you're even a lower rate now than you were at the financial crisis. So things are not getting better. Everything we're doing is deflationary. There is no inflationary pressure in the economy other than these very short-term artificial impacts of either sending checks to households and shutting down economies. Those are both over with. So now you're back to the deflation monster is going to come and, and, and be your problem going forward. Okay. All right, I'm, off, so, I'm, off, I'm off of my rant. That was all right. Rant. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I know I cracked open something that it's own video, probably its own series of videos. Um, so, you know, we'll try to put a bow in it as best we can. Um, real quick, I agree with everything you said, uh, except uh, one thing that will be inflationary going forward, it, it is it is not going to uh, in any way change the deflationary uh, story you just talked about is um, uh, commodity costs are highly likely to march upwards for um, supply reasons. Um, not not supply chain reasons, which we're dealing with right now, but just 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 fundamental underinvestment that go back you know a decade or more decades, um, where we are going to want a lot more of those things than are just available, um, given the fact that we've underinvested in capex and exploration and all that type of stuff. Um, in many ways, it just makes the situation even worse. So, yes. Lance, just before we move on, real quick, I'm going to re-ask my question, um, and you might not have. <laughs> oh, I didn't. I didn't answer it. <laughs> well, which is just basically so. So, like, how does that resolve? Right? Do we just sit mired in this deflationary morass? We can't get out of. We can't get back to the growth that we want, and we are just sort of languishing in it for decades. Um, oh. Or at some point, do we do a big default? Or do the printers go on and we just kill the currency? And, and then, of course, that's a default in and of itself. And we'd have to start with a whole new monetary regime at some point. Or, OK, so yes to both of those questions. Sure. So we can just turn the printer on. We can do a Japan, right? Just print money and, and create an inflationary environment and, and, you know, do that. Yes, we could default on our debt. We're doing it now, right? Student loans, good, good reason, right? The, no, no matter how you want to, you know, lay it out there. Right. Student loan forgiveness is debt default. Right. It, it, it is. Although, let me just say for folks that are reacting to that, I mean, that is a tiny fraction of a tiny fraction of the overall debt pile. Yeah. But here, here's my point about that, though. It's a slippery slope you're going down. Yeah. Doing that. And again, we go back to the most important factor what made the US economy the number, look, capitalism in and of itself in the US was a monetary experiment. And it was wildly successful. And one of the backbones of that capitalistic monetary experiment was the rule of law. And that means that if Adam and I have a contract, he borrows money from me, he promises to pay me back. If he fails to pay me back, I sue him and I have recourse. That's the rule of law. And when you start doing things like, oh, we're just going to do debt forgiveness, that's awesome, uh, except you just defaulted on a debt obligation. And so it is you know, while it's not termed or we don't view it as debt default, we're calling it debt forgiveness. We can put a pretty bow on it all day long. It's debt default. Somebody's not getting paid on, on one side of the ledger. Now, having said that, though, so yes, the point is, is that we've already opened up Pandora's box of debt default to debt jubilee, as they say, where we just, hey, you know what? We're just going to wipe the debt off the books and it's all good. Everybody go back to square one. That sounds great on the surface, but think about for just a moment 
all the people out there that have, have bought bonds and are, are using those bonds as a as an income stream for right. their family. All the pensions that are invested oh, in that. Exactly. I mean, that, that, you know, and that's, you know, so it's, it's great. So people that have debt, they're going, yeah, forgive my debt. You're not going to like the consequence of that. Yeah, you may get your debt forgiven, but the other side of that coin is not very pretty. So yes, four hundred one k tanks, your pension cuts its benefits. It's, yeah, exactly. It's a terrible, terrible outcome. Or there's a third option, and that is, and at some point, consumers kind of have a a revelation, and they go, you know what? This is stupid. I'm going to start saving more money. I'm going to pay off my debts. I'm going to. I can't do this. I cannot do this anymore this way. And you have a kind of a, a revival, so to speak, of some financial sanity in the U.S. Now, that's that's pretty much the, the long shot you get. I'm just saying it's an option, right? That, yeah. You know, well, we, I, I actually we, think it's going to happen, um, but it's going to be forced on them the way the Depression forced a lot of frugal habits on our, you know, grandparents. Um, yeah, no, though that is, you know, if everybody decides to save it once, that's a depression. Right. And it's funny because we're, we're, we, we remember that there were terms being kicked around a few years ago that America has a savings problem, right? Where, yeah. you know, our leaders are telling us they want us to spend to stimulate the economy. I mean, they're, they're, they're encouraging profligate behavior. It's, but it's, it's interesting, it's, even it's, in that, like, I could see how that would help the household balance sheet, but that I don't, I don't see the, the, the federal balance sheet willingly doing that. No, because it's not politically expedient. But unfortunately, look, I've talked about this before. Okay, I'm going to run for president in 2024, right? So my platform is that, you know, we said this before, right? My platform is, is that the government's only responsible for two things, national security and basically maintaining our debt, right? So just, you know, kind of getting the, the, the fiscal house in order. Everything else goes back to the state. So Department of Education, energies, everything. So, you know, you know Governor Gavin Newsom, you can do whatever you want with all your policies in California. Texas can do whatever they want. And everybody just is, is going to be responsible for their own state. So get off my back. It's all on you. So however you run your balance sheet, then that's up to you. But, you know, from the government standpoint, we're going to shrink that puppy down a lot. We're going to get down to just the core constitutional responsibilities of what the government is that's maintaining national security and, and, and U.S. infrastructure. So I'm going to make sure the roads and the bridges and the highways all work. And we're going to make sure that we have national defense. And I'm going to make sure that the debt gets paid. That's my job. But we're not going to issue any more debt. We're not going to, we're going to start paying off debt. We're going to do this type of stuff. And we're going to do this by stripping down the budget. So those that $3.9 trillion in revenue that you're spending on taxes every year, we're going to be spending about $2.5 trillion of that a year just to pay off the debt, right? So we're going to, we're going to ramp this stuff down pretty quick and, and it's going to be pretty brutal. The economy. I'm just going to warn you right now. So if you've got investments in your 401k plan, you probably want to move those to cash. If you've got, if you're in the economy, you better save up some emergency savings because we're about to have a really, really nasty depression for about three years. Coming out of this though, we're going to be dynamically very strong and, and, and you'll come out and you'll have exponential growth in the economy once you get through this. But again, nobody is going to vote for that. <laughs> So no. that's the whole point. So, you know, do you want free stuff or do you want a strong economy? And you, you can't have both. They don't work together. Okay. There is no such right. thing as a strong socialist economy. All right, folks, we're not trying to completely depress all of you. Like I said, though, this is the kind of discussion that gets me, you know, 
gives me that gut urge to go stick my head in the oven. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> apparently, we got three three options here. We we can go through a, a, just a gut wrenching true depression uh, mm -hmm. by letting debt defaults ripple through the system, but we clear the malinvestment and it's horrific for two three years. But we get beyond it. We kill our currency by uh, printing way too much of it to nominally meet our, our debts and default in that way, or we elect Lance. So hopefully everybody chooses <laughs> door number three. All right. Well, look, um, Lance, I want to get to any trades that you guys might have made recently. Um, yeah. I got a lot of flack last week because you didn't make trades, but I didn't tell people that and people were really, you know, uh, confused. Sorry about that. Real, real quick before we get there, I want to put up just one chart. It's a tweet I put out recently. Um, this is just housing. I just want us to at least touch on it super briefly. Um, this is a chart of uh, it's the um, uh, housing prices to median household income index, right? And in theory, home prices should be tied to household incomes, right? That's what the incomes are what let you afford the mortgage, right? Um, this has hit a new peak, adjusted a new peak. Um, higher than the 2007 housing bubble. And it has just, just begun to nose over here. And so if indeed, Lance, from what you and I have been predicting in you know, past recent videos, that we are beginning a housing correction here, which I don't see how we can't, given all the macro uh, factors, in particular, how much uh, mortgage rates have increased recently, we have a very long way to mean revert here based upon this chart. Um, so we don't need to spend a ton of time in housing, but I did want to let you react to that. Yeah, no, no, just real quick I, I, on that chart. Uh, what's the housing side of it? Is that Shiller? Is that the Shiller? Yes, Shiller. Yeah. Okay, so that, that, the reason I ask is, so that's a three-month lag. So that, that and this is, this is my point about inflation as well. You know, 42%, roughly a little more than 40% of CPI is, is the homeowner's equivalent rent and all that housing stuff. So that you know, that little tip over is three months old, right? Because it's three month lag on the data. So if that has just started to break over, in reality, prices have already come down a whole lot more than that. So to your point, we're going to see this deflationary pressure in housing. And you're right, we've got a long way to go just for houses. And look, and, 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 and look historically speaking, all through history, if you take, if Go take a, a, you know, you can download the Case Shiller Index. So if you go to the St. Louis Fred website, FRE, just Google FRED, right? So Fred. And the first thing that comes up is the St. Louis Federal Reserve. And if you click on their link and go to them, you can, in the search bar, just put in Shiller House Index, and this index will come up. And if you draw a long-term trend line in that data, what you will find is, is that there are many times in history where house prices get above the long-term kind of median trend line and they come back to it. And it's a regular phenomenon that occurs over time. And of course, 2008, we got way above it, reverted back to it. And so just to revert back to the long-term mean, not even saying we revert below the mean, right, which is possible, but just to get back to the mean growth trend of, of real estate prices, you're talking about a substantial correction in home prices from where we are. That's going to feed into that inflationary um, measure of CPI. And we're going to see a, a, another reason why you're going to see a, a sharp deflation. A sharp decline, right? Because housing makes up such a, uh, yeah, or owner's equivalent of rent makes up such a big part of it. Yeah. Um, okay, great. Because, so, because you're going to see the same thing in rents too, by the way. 
multifamily is hugely overbuilt. We talked about that last week. So you'll see right. a decline in both rent and houses. So come down. Right. There. It, rents are a bit, uh, they take a bit longer to nose over only because you, you have these leases, these right. contracts. contracts that have to have to run out. But yeah. Um, okay. So trades for the week. So, so trades for the week. Um, a couple of things. So last week, we moved a whole bunch of our cash into to a one to three month treasury bill ETF. So it's BIL is the ETF that we used. Um, and that's just basically store cash at a little bit better return than money market. Uh, this week, we actually used the dip in the markets to start just nibbling in. We talked about bought a little bit of AMD, bought a little bit of, uh, of NVIDIA. Um, a little bit early, unfortunately, <laughs> but again, we're trying to build these positions. But you're nibbling, yeah. Yeah, we're nibbling at lower prices, and so we'll get some lower prices to add more to this eventually. Um, also add a little bit to um, our, and these are all positions that we owned already. So we're just, we had reduced them earlier in the year, and now we add a little bit more to them. We also added a little bit to our uh, United Healthcare position because we like healthcare long-term. We're all getting older. And we also added a little bit to our Google position. We were very underweight in Google. And so we just added a little bit to that as well, just from a communication side. Again, just trying to keep our, our and, and if you, we have a, a website called simplevisor.com and we have a, a piece of analysis that we built there that looks at every sector of the market relative to the market itself. And, and what it tells you is, is what sectors are the most oversold or most overbought relative to the market itself. And those are always really good opportunities. And then when you click on, for instance, healthcare, which was oversold relative to the market, it then goes through the top 10 holdings of the, of the sector and tells you which ones are oversold or overbought relative to the, to the sector and the market itself. So it's a good way to kind of, you know, kind of fish through and, and look for some trading opportunities. Again, um, you know, this was all based on the premise that we were going to get a rally here short term. We still think that's the case. Markets are still very oversold here. These are tradable positions. So if we do get a rally of, you know, five, six, eight, 10, 12 percent, whatever it is, and our, and our target is kind of around 3850, 3900 on the S&P, um, we'll go through and, and start raising, taking profits and raising cash. So we've been kind of swing trading this market a little bit this year uh, just to try to add a little bit of extra return to the portfolio overall. So, OK, because uh, uh, I was going to ask about the, the only one that kind of caught me was Google. Um, yeah. Because if you if we if we think that the market's going to progress through the course of a bear market the way that we think it will, it seems like tech will get hit disproportionately, and the big fang guys haven't come down, haven't had their big correction yet. But it sounds like the Google position is it's more of a swing trade, which yeah, is yeah. hey, we think that there's a good potential with it for a bounce. We're going to ride that for the bounce, and then probably sell yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the reason is, is that, look, you know, if you're going to get a bounce in the market, you're, you're, look, we go, let's go back to the fundamental basis of how this market works. It's all about passive inflows. And so NVIDIA, Apple, Google, Amazon, Tesla, um, those are your top 10 holdings in the S&P index. So 30 cents out of every dollar that goes into the market on a rally up goes into those stocks. So they're going to lead the way on the way up and they'll, they'll give you your most bang for your buck. And particularly, um, and this type of a market that's pretty thinly traded anyway, um, ETF flows are going to really kind of drive what happens, especially okay. on the short covering side. Um, you, you reminded me uh, in the video that I recorded earlier today on zombie companies, uh, the uh, David Trainer, the, the guest expert, um, really had a great um, point that he made about um, one particular company 
in the list you just mentioned. I'm not going to say which one it is, um, but <laughs> that he, he, he thinks could be the trigger for uh, creating a cascading sell-off in the zombie company space. And I'd love to talk more about it, but I don't want to. I don't want to steal his thunder. Uh, and that video is going to come out early next week after this one does. So I'm going to leave it there as a teaser for folks that are interested. Uh, they can think over the weekend what what company that might be, uh, and then you can watch the video next week and, and find I, out. But I, it actually was a, it, it it was something I hadn't thought about, and it makes a lot of sense. So, anyways, I'll leave folks it, with that that teaser. Does it start with a T? I'm not going to answer any questions. <laughs> I'm not going to answer any questions. Um, all right. It's, it's, so, just it's just between you and me. Nobody's listening anymore. Yep. Yep. No, no, no. We're all good. Um, okay. Oh, by, so, by, uh, by, real quick, by the way, um, can I do a shameless plug here? Um, absolutely. So, you know, if we do happen to miss a week where we don't talk about trades, and it's happened before a couple of times, you know, we get busy talking about stuff. Uh, we post our trades for the week every week in our newsletter. So if you go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, just click on the newsletter link, subscribe. I email the newsletter out every Saturday. At the bottom of the newsletter, we list every trade we do every week. So, you know, plus, you know, the market statistics and everything else that's going on in the markets and how we're trading the markets and, and everything else. So, um, but every week we list those trades. So if you want it, it's free, realinvestmentadvice.com. Yeah, I mean, everybody that's interested in this segment should be subscribed to that newsletter. And um, Lance, is it is it that newsletter or is it Simple Advisor that sends out the trade alerts the day you make them? Because I get that's, those too. That's 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 our research platform called SimpleAdvisor.com, and that's where you get access to all of our data and analysis. Okay, great. So, yeah. folks that are interested in getting more timely alerts on that, go sign up for that. Um, all right, so. Uh, we're going to have to keep these answers short. We're not going to have time for a long rant here this week. Um, but first off, um, and we can flag this for future discussion, maybe next week or, or a week soon. Uh, it's now October, right? So end of the year is now in sight. So are there any end of year considerations that folks should start preparing for mm -hmm. from a financial standpoint? Obviously, tax loss harvesting comes to mind, but yeah. you're nodding here. So what, what, what type of things should people start thinking about? Well, that you, you nailed that one, right? So tax yeah. loss policy. This is look. Um, so and two please define that, it for those who don't know the jargon. Yeah, well, we'll just make it easier than that. So tax loss harvesting is where you basically sell losers and you offset some winners, and it reduces your taxable income for the year, right? So, um, but you know, just you know, just as an example, I can sell a, I can sell a position at a loss in my portfolio, and I can deduct three thousand dollars of that off every year off my taxes. Or I can, if it's a long-term loss versus a long, I can offset a long-term loss against a long-term gain. If we're coming out, so this is a great, your bear markets are great for this. You can sell all your losers going into the end of the year and put all those in your books. Just make sure that your accountant carries those losses forward because as we come out of this and get a bear market, I mean, get back into a bull market, which we will, you'll have these book losses that you can offset later on your taxes. So Look, it's, it's, you know, selling the loser is never great, but at least you can get back, you know, 33, 37% on your, of your money, you know, offsetting gains in the future, depending on, you know, your, your tax rate. But, you know, this is, so going into the year, this is, this is going to be a good year. Now, where does this bear market end? Who knows? Does it end this year? Is it end in January? Does it, does it end in April of next year, August, you know, 2024? Who knows? Right. But at some point this will end and we're going to start investing, you know, on the upside and making money. And these losses will 
be able to be used here in the future. So yeah, definitely going into the year, we're going to be doing that in our portfolios as well. Okay. And, and this, this is maybe detail for a conversation that somebody should have with you, you know, with an advisor, um, or maybe we can get into it in more depth in a future video if folks want. Um, but uh, so as the year is ending, you know, as Lance is saying, you can look at losers and say, all right, you know what, I'm going to sell them. I'm going to lock in those losses so I can use them to offset gains in the future. Um, but but let's say you. Yeah, sorry. Uh, it's a huge point. I forgot. OK, <laughs> this, this, this is the whole point. Um, so one thing that people do poorly is they sell stuff and then they feel they, they, they feel like they're in this club that says, oh, I sold Apple at a loss and I can never buy the stock back again. That is not true. Um, if you sell the stock at a loss, so look, I, I, if you like Apple long, I'm just picking the stock, right? It can be anything. Yeah. Um, I think you're taking this was where I was going anyway. So oh, keep going. okay. <laughs> well, okay. Well, sorry, Dan. I, you know, because this, this is, there's two it's parts. It's an important to, point. Go ahead. Yeah. It's, there's two parts to, to tax loss strategies. So, you know, there's a lot of companies that are down this year. They're great companies, right? So let's say that you own some of the stocks as an example. Let's, let's pick up you know, a stock like Roku or, or something else, kind of the Kathy Wood, you know, type stocks. A lot of those stocks are down 60, 70, 80% this year. And let's say you owned it from the beginning of the year. So you're down a whole lot in that position. Sell it, take the loss on it. And you're like, you're like but Lance, I'm, I'm, I, I sold it. And now if it comes back, I'll, I'll never make my money back. That's not true because you just have to wait, uh, do yourself a favor, wait 31 days. In 30, on the 32nd day, buy the stock back. And then you can have a whole new run with that position. And as it recovers, you can make money with it, but you still have that tax loss to offset against that position in the future. So it gives you a way to, to, to take advantage of those losses, book those off for a future day. Now, the stock, look, these stocks are not going to go to the moon in 31 days. So you're not going to miss nothing. You may miss a little bit of the bottom, but you're, you're going to have plenty of upside uh, in a lot of these stocks. And you can kind of pick, there's a, there's a whole bevy list of companies that are down 60, 70, 80% that are good. Now, just make sure that you're buying good quality companies, right? So there's some stocks that are down 60, 70, 80%. They deserve to be. For a good reason. Other, yeah. yeah. And others aren't. But yeah, don't forget the buyback part. That was the part I forgot. Sell it in 31. If you want, and then buy it back. That's not part of the calculation. But just because you sold something lost doesn't mean you you are restricted from ever buying it back. Okay, great. Yep. And that is exactly where I was going. I was going to tell folks about the wash sale rule, which is why you're saying wait 31 days. Wash sale is is if you if you sell a stock and then buy it back within the 30-day period, it's considered a wash sale and in, in, in these um, these protections that we're talking about um, uh, go away from being able to roll your, your losses over. Um, and, and, so and, by the, and by the way, that that wash sale, so what happens is if you violate the wash sale rule, you lose your tax benefit. Right. Um, that also applies to buying what the IRS deems a substantially similar position. So, you know, in other words, if I sell Intel today and I buy a call option on Intel tomorrow, that's a substantially similar position and you'll, that's considered a violation of the wash sale rule. And so you're, you're going again, right where I was about to go. So, <laughs> uh, and, and I want to, I want to get your feedback on this, which is, um, so to your point, uh, I sell, I sell Intel, right. Mm -hmm. And, but I love it. And I think it's got great long-term prospects. So I'm going to bite my fingernails and wait 31 days to buy it back and hope Intel doesn't go off to the races. Right. 
Now, if you wanted to and say, I just got to be in this space, even during these 30 days, you could take your sale proceeds and buy AMD, right? Um, or you could buy a semiconductor industry ETF, right? Yeah. And ride that. And then if, when your 31-day window is up, you could sell that and then go back into Intel if you want to. So it's not that you have to fully sit on the sidelines with that that cash and just bide your time. You can put it into a related investment. It just can't be too close, like you said, yeah. uh, where it triggers the wash rule. And I get in this argument all the time with people. They go, well, you know, I had this semiconductor ETF. And so I bought another, I bought a different semiconductor ETF and it'll avoid the wash sale rule. I argue that point all the time. I'm going, no, those are, those are very similar positions. And, and my issue is, is I just don't really want the IRS at my house. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. It's just not worth it. So, I mean, if you had a semiconductor ETF, then go buy two semiconductor stocks instead, you know, buy small positions and, you know, say you had a 5% position in the SMH, go buy two, two and a half percent positions in AMD and Intel or whatever you like, right? They're going to roughly track each other anyway, but you're not going to wind. Nobody likes getting that letter from the IRS that says, um, Mr. Roberts, you are being audited by the IRS. Please supply these documents. That is never. And by the way, that envelope's always like this big and that. Big. Yeah. <laughs> well, so so the key takeaway here is is if you want to take advantage of this this uh, tax sale tax loss harvesting, you should. If you want to get creative about what to do in the thirty one day period, probably best to talk to your financial advisor and just say, Hey, if I buy X, Y, or Z, am I good enough? Right, and get there get their counsel on it uh, real quick, real quick before into the, so into the year stuff real quick. And I'm, I'll be real fast. Yeah. Um, you know, if you need to open an IRA, get it done by, you know, December the 31st, you know, uh, get your deposit in. If you want an IRA deduction on your income taxes, that includes SEP IRAs. So if you want to deduct on your taxes, you know, go ahead and open those SEP IRAs and IRAs by the end of the year. Um, uh, save your, save, save your advisor a little bit of grief of trying to do it on April the 14th. Right. Yeah. So just do it by the end of the year. It's a good practice. Um, you don't have to. Oh, by the way, uh, people do this all the time. They open up an, they open up an IRA or a SEP IRA. They open up new accounts every year. You don't have to do that. If you have an IRA already open, you can, can just contribute to the same one every year. Um, <laughs> uh, no, you'd be surprised how many people don't know that. Um, you know, also another thing to do by year end is, 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 you know, think about, you know, what your tax situation is going to be next year. And this, you know, along with your tax loss harvesting, also say, look, you know, I think I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to have to pay a tax bill next year, you know, use the end of the year to go ahead and, and harvest enough cash to cover your tax bill. So you're not potentially forced to sell at, you know, you know, on April the 13th, you realize you've got a tax bill and the market's tanking and you've got to sell right there. So, you know, be opportunistic about if you think you're going to have a tax bill. And if you don't, you always put the cash back to work, right? Um, but use your tax loss harvesting and those type of things to do that. And don't forget also going into the year, your required minimum distributions out of your IRAs. Um, the list is long. There's a lot of year and stuff you need to do. And, you know, if you, if you have a question, I've got some great financial planners in my office that can go through all the long list of stuff. Well, you're do. making me think, should we just do a webinar on this? Yeah, it, it's actually good because, uh, you know, there's probably 50 things to do before the year end that you want to take care of. All right, folks. So if you are interested, let us know in the comments section below if there's enough demand. We will get a webinar in before the end of the year. Um, just you reminded me too, just to remind folks, if you're thinking about buying I-bonds and right now, folks, they are a screaming deal. Um, <laughs> get a buy them for the end of the year uh, to get to get your 2022 allotment. Um, all right. So as we wrap up here, folks, a um, couple of bits of news before we get to our little mini rant. Um, 
I'm going to be at uh, away at a conference next week, New Orleans Investment Conference. Uh, I'll be moderating a couple of panels there. Um, we'll still be doing all the regular content publishing, so don't worry. Uh, you're not going to miss any videos. Uh, you just might see me with a different background. Um, but what's what I think is is just important to share with you guys about this is you know Wealthion continues to really build a lot of great momentum here. So, you know, I'm beginning to get more invitations to be interviewed or to go out and, and speak at, at conferences. Um, I just want to share some stats with you. So we we started this channel a year and a half ago, April, early April of, of last year, 2021. And in just a little over, really pretty much almost exactly a year and a half, um, we are now at, uh, we had 2.4 million views on this channel over the past 30 days. And I spent some time looking at our um, peers in the space, the other big channels, I won't mention them by name, but the other big channels where people do macro interviews. Um, and Wealthion is uh, in the number two position and it's pretty close on number one. And it's ahead of a lot of brands that surprised me. Uh, and I, I just share all this to to share it with you all because what Wealthion has become and, and, and hopefully will continue to become is a complete function of the audience that comes here, what you tell me you guys want to hear, what speakers you want to see, what topics you want discussed. Um, and uh, you know, as we continue to to have great milestones like this, I, I just want to share all that stuff with you folks. We've got viewers from all over the world. I mean, every country you can think of, folks come here. Um, we've got viewers of all ages, which is great. I mean, we tend to skew older because those tend to be the people that have more assets and are researching, you know, looking for information to help them protect and grow it. But what really sort of warms my heart is the feedback that I get from millennial and Gen Z viewers right now who are saying, hey, this is a really valuable resource for somebody like me just starting out. Uh, and thanks so much. You know, I'm having trouble finding uh, good direction. And finally, there's a channel here that's kind of, you know, given it to me straight. So um, I, I just share all this to, again, just let you guys understand the, the movement that you're creating here. It's uh, it's totally my pleasure and privilege to be the guy that gets to be in front of the camera and be the face of it. Um, but it really is a, a, a people's movement. And as one of our viewers, I just want to thank you for helping create what we're creating here. Um, I also just want to say, too, that we got, uh, Lance, we got great feedback from last week's discussion about sort of life advice to somebody who's just starting out, right? Um, and uh, I, I want to let folks know that we will be leaning further into that. Um, not entirely, don't have the specifics on exactly what we're going to do yet, but in terms of creating more content around this, maybe more evergreen, maybe more structured as a series that somebody who's 18 or 50 or whatever, who just wants to benefit from sort of the fundamentals of, of how to build wealth. Um, uh, there clearly is such a need and demand for that type of information out there that I've, I've noted that that's going to be something that I make a top priority for 2023. Um, we'll do definitely a webinar uh, in terms of helping, uh, you know, uh, raising financially savvy kids and and helping people who are at a young stage of their life really get a, a, a good jumping off part. So we'll we'll do a, a dedicated webinar around that if, for folks who watch that and would love to involve their kids in a more sort of dedicated uh, webinar around it. Um, and then real quick, I, um, I put a, a, a thread out on Twitter the other day because I had a guy who was in his early 30s uh, and a new dad. Um, 
email me independently and just said, Hey, I really appreciated what you put out there. You and Lance put out there. Um, I, you know, just as a new dad, I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling right now with the pressures of that plus a lot of career uncertainty. And I don't have a ton of savings, you know, yet at this stage of my life. And I'm, I'm really just, you know, looking for ways in which I can, um, uh, you know, get some hope and optimism to move forward towards, you know, it just, that that weight, you know, pressing down on him just, you know, was was concerned that it was really becoming heavy. And 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 I remember Lance, what it was like at that life stage. And I know you do too. We've talked on this channel before about our our humble beginnings, and you're sleeping in your car for a year or two, or whatnot. Um, but what I did in that thread is I asked my Twitter audience, um, hey, you know, elders, what advice would you give this guy? You know, having been in that stage before, and the advice was less for him specifically and more just for all younger people starting out at that stage where, where it just feels so overwhelming in many cases. And the amount of, of both outpouring of encouragement and support, but just really fantastic life advice that folks offered in that Twitter stream. Uh, folks, if you have any interest in, in that type of stuff, I highly recommend you go to my Twitter feed and, and see it and just read through the dozens and dozens and dozens of great comments that the community left for that guy. Um, so anyways, my, my Twitter handle is, is at Menlo Bear. Um, sometime on this channel, I'll explain why I came up with that handle. Um, but also maybe shameless plug too. If you, I mean, go there to read that 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 thread and and feel free to add your own uh, advice uh, to this fellow too, if you can. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do these videos, you know, five times a week or whatnot, but I'm on Twitter multiple times throughout the day, sharing lots of data, um, interacting with, with users and whatnot. So if you want to get um, kind of the real-time flow of thoughts coming through me and the wealthy on business, uh, go do subscribe to that uh, or go follow that that at Menlo Bear uh, handle and, and we'll be able to connect that way too. So Lance, you've been nodding a lot as I've been giving this whole dialogue diatribe here. Um, anything you want to add into that? No, I think we should do, you know, again, I think a, a, you know, a whole series on what we can do, you know, for younger people coming up. Because again, there's so many, you know, there's so many pitfalls that happen in life that as you're kind of going on there and, and again, you know, through my life, you know, you've, you stumble, you fall, you fail, you have to get back up and go over again. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I was talking to my daughter, you know, after our conversation last week, I was talking to my daughter, she's, and uh, she's in college and she came home for the weekend. And, um, you know, so we were sitting around talking and she was complaining about, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's, she's like, man, it's, it's tough in college. You know, I can, sometimes I don't have enough money to eat and, you know, I'm eating mac and cheese and, and I'm like, well, it's, it's, it's really different than being at home, isn't it? And, you know, <laughs> being on your own, it's, it's, it's not just that. You really don't, I now appreciate, you know, she said something was really encouraging. She goes, I really appreciate all that you and mom did for me because I didn't really realize, you know, how much money it costs to, to do the things that we did as a family I don't know how y'all did it. And I said, well, it's because we work hard. And, you know, when, when we were growing, when they were growing up, you know, sometimes they would ask me and, and her mom, they say, you know, y'all are always working. Y'all always, why y'all always working? You know, y'all need to take more time off and do fun stuff. It's like, well, we work so we can do these things. Right. And, and, you know, we have to, and so it's starting to, you know, these things are starting to click with her in particular that, you know, there's a correlation between work and, and lifestyle and, and the, the better lifestyle you want, the more work it requires. But, you know, and, and, you know, so we were having this conversation and she said the funniest thing to me. She goes, you know, she goes, 
I really just am kind of done. I'm, I'm just ready to, to, to quit now and I can die tomorrow. It'll be okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've, I've done everything I need to do. Right. It's just, <laughs> this is kind of, you know, this, this could, when I get out of college, I know, I know what's facing me and I kind of don't want to do that. So, you know? But you know, again, it's, it's, you know, and, and to your, the whole point about that, she was joking, of course, and, and just, you know, talking about the, you know, how challenging that she's now starting to realize life is going to be. But, you know, when you're in your 20s, when you're in 30s, and, you know, we talk about, you know, all these things on CNBC about, you know, oh, just save $500 a month and invest it in the S&P and you'll be, you know, mega rich when you retire. It all sounds great in theory, but, you know, 80% of Americans are near retirement, don't have any money. And there's a reason for that because, you know, in your 20s, your 30s, you're just trying to get by, right? I mean, and then you then you go do, so, do something stupid, like have four kids. And then you got to raise them, <laughs> you know, you got to pay for, you know, you got college and you got weddings and you got all this other stuff. And it's just this kind of never ending, you know, drag of what money you're making and, you know, having to make those really tough decisions about, you know, sacrificing today, you know, for a better tomorrow that, you know, that becomes very challenging because we all want to live in big houses. We all want to drive fast cars and nice cars, whatever it is. And, you know, we make poor financial decisions while we're young that really eats us up, you know, down the road. And, you know, these are the things that, you know, nobody teaches us. And as we talked about last week, you know, there's, you know, the advice is simple. Um, you know, Dave Ramsey talks about, you know, chicken noodle soup for the soul type thing, right? It's just very basic financial information. And when you tell somebody these things like, hey, dummy, you know, spend less than you make. Everybody goes, I know, I know, but you don't do it, right? And, you know, these, and but those things add up. I heard a great analogy the other day about a, a guy playing golf. And he says, hey, let's 10 cents a hole. And the guy says, okay, great, no problem. 10 cents a hole. And you know, I mean, 10 cents, right? I lose a hole, it's 10 cents. He says, here's what we're doing. We'll double it every hole, right? So 10 cents first hole, 20 cents second hole, so forth and so on. Hole 15, you're at like $1,600. Yeah. By yeah. hole 18, it's like 18, 000, I don't know, the, I can't remember the exact number, right. but it's like- but, but it's the whole compounding interest thing, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. And, and the point of his conversation was, was what he was, he was talking to a big group of, of young people. And his point was, Save, you know, when you just go out and blow $5 on a Starbucks, right, or you, you know, invest in some crazy cryptocurrency or whatever, and you lose 10 grand on it, you know, at the time you're going, ah, it's just 10 grand, no big deal, right? It's just, just that. Start compounding that money out over 20, 30, 40 years and see how much money you just threw away. Even $5 on a Starbucks cup of coffee today, compound that out 30 years and see how much difference that would make to your net wealth. You know, if you said, you know what I'm going to do, I'm going to save that five dollars instead. I'm not right. going to I'm going to drink free coffee and, you know, save my five dollars. Right. Or, or or you do the, the same math where you you order something from DoorDash for, you know, 30 bucks uh, on your credit card. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I tell this to my kids, you know, certainly my daughter who's in college and tell her not to get a credit card because this is what happens is you do that. Right. And then it takes you forever to pay that off. And you realize that you ended up that that thirty dollar thirty five dollar you know food order became a two hundred seventy five dollar pizza, right? Yep. But but see these but this these are common sense things, and you know them, I know them, everybody listening to us right now knows them, and we and and we do bad stuff anyway. Right. And and the, and the discipline part is very hard, 
And it's just something that, you know, it's, it's like we we're talking about the debt jubilee earlier and, and, you know, elect me president for three years, everything's going to suck. But after that, it's going to be great, right? right. We just don't want to go through the suck part. <laughs> it's just human nature, right? Yeah. Uh, well, anyways, folks, so so we will continue to lean into this sort of topic to the extent you guys continue to want us to. And of course, a, a big sort of challenge here is I, I actually was surprised I was able to get my kids to watch our, our session plants and we'll, we'll see oh. how much of it really digested. But they're like your daughter, they're they're both sort of waking up to the fact that, okay, the real world actually isn't all sunshine and, and unicorns. And some of this advice actually looks like it's going to be useful. But I know a lot of parents are saying, hey, I, I really want to engage my kids around this stuff. And it's just really hard. It's, it, you're kind of dragging a hostile participant right into this process. Um, and so I'm not going to say we're going to be able to like magically solve that for everybody, but we will try to create the content, package the content in such a way or the webinar in such a way where we can involve uh, new eyes that are younger and maybe not quite bought into all this yet as much as the parents are, um, but try to hopefully present it in a way that at least some of these seeds stick and maybe over time germinate. Um, all right. With that being said, we we did our um, our Ask Anything Q and A earlier this week just to just to round out talking about our kids. Um, and I mentioned I had to I had to get out of there at the end of it because my daughter was going off to her driver's test. I'm happy to say she passed, folks. Thanks for everybody who was asking. Um, so there is a new driver on the road. Um, it's a big. You're, you're, big day. you're my daughter, my my daughter too. And uh, Lord help us all. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So. Um, Here's here's my closing mini rant. It's going to have to be super mini given the time here. Uh, I'm going to put up an image, Lance. You can't see it here, but I'll describe it for you. Um, imagine a woman eating the biggest slice of pizza you've ever seen. Um, I mean, it's like the size of a Labrador retriever. It's massive, right? And uh, it's a pepperoni pizza. There's there's a couple of pepperonis that are on the pizza dish in front of the woman. Um, there's one that's that's actually off the dish on the table. And uh, the caption is basically, uh, this is a visualization of the wealth disparity uh, inside the US right now. Top 1%, that pizza slice is theirs. Uh, the bottom, uh, the, the next uh, top, you know, uh, 9%, uh, they, they're the guys who own the, the pepperonis that are still, a few pepperonis that are still on the plate. Um, the the fifty the 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 top ten to fifty percent well they've got that little pepperoni that's off the uh, off the dish there and the bottom fifty percent it's on the floor right they're just getting yeah. whatever crumbs splatter on the floor right um, and it's uh, it's funny we laugh about it it's really when you look at the numbers it's it's not all that far off um, yeah. which is so freaking criminal about this and and and, and the reason why I'm bringing it up here is is um, I talked about this in several interviews earlier this week about sort of the the morality or immorality of what the central banks have wrought here and, and look Lance, let's hope we're wrong but i think we both feel that the the likely probability here is that there's going to be a massive downward repricing of, of assets that, that continues from here in housing and stocks bonds etc and um let's just assume it's a really bad one right um no matter how bad it is the top one percent they're going to be fine they're still going to have a big chunk of that pizza slice. They could lose half that pizza slice and still have way more pizza than a human could ever eat, right? Um, it's really everybody else who uh, is going to, to be losing way more than they can afford to lose here. So the, the, the creating such an unstable system really you know, is disproportionately punitive 
to everybody except those who are benefiting the most from it. And, and you know, I sort of laughed when I saw this, but I, I saw it as sort of a teachable moment to, to one visual that just sort of immediately turns the light bulb on in people's heads. Um, but but for me, the, one of the big reasons why you and I do this on a week-to-week basis is to try to help and educate as many people as possible so they can take prudent steps now in advance of what might be happening. Um, but it really is like, again, maybe we're just on a little bit of a depressive uh, tone this week about putting my head in the oven or, or just getting really angry. But uh, yeah, you know, whatever destruction happens from here, the top 1% that has has benefited like bandits from all this, they're going to be just fine. It's really the little guy who's really going to take it in the yeah. shorts. But let, let's look at it a little bit. You know, you, you just, you know, our conversation is second go and, and, you know, this conversation now. Let's look at it from a little different angle, right? And so, so first of all, yes, the rich are rich and that happens in every economy, right? There's always the rich, there's always the poor and that's the way it is. Um, but everybody listening to this video, you have a choice right now. Today, you have a choice. And you can either choose to be a victim or a survivor. I mean, that's really what this comes down to. What I mean by that is, is look, you're not going to have a billion dollars. It's just, you know, unless you go start, you, you can go out and you can start the next, you know, Twitter app. Because Twitter is apparently, according to the media, it's about to all blow up because Elon Musk is going to buy it. So, you know, whatever. So <laughs> Menlo Bear is about to go down the, down the, down the rabbit hole with everybody else. Um, so you go start up the mystery Twitter and, and, you know, you become a billionaire. Great. That's an option, right? Capitalism is not dead, right? And, and despite rumors to the contrary that capitalism is dead and it's all about corporatism, it's not. You, there's nothing stopping you today from going out and building a business and building wealth for yourself. There's nothing stopping you. You just have to be willing to take the risk. But let's say you don't even want to do that. You still have a choice. And, you know, in this economy, you can be the victim, which is to have too much credit card debt, too much household debt, not, you know, not managing your income, not investing properly, not saving money as you need to be saving money. And, when you don't do those things, you are the victim of the economy because when you lose your job, when interest rates go up, when inflation happens, you can't compensate. Why Why does, to, to Adam's point, right? If I've got a billion dollars, I don't really give a damn about inflation because I can afford, I can afford a pizza at $5 and I can afford a $500 pizza because I got a billion dollars in the bank. It doesn't affect me. For you, it, it does, but you have a choice not to be a victim. And, and so this is the moment, right, that where you get to make that decision and say, I'm tired of being a victim and start doing things differently to put yourself into a position to weather downturns in the economy, become more financially stable. And guess what? If you start creating cash flow, which this is all about, right? Got to have, got it, got to pay off these other things. So you have positive free cash flow. So when things happen, I've still got cash flow and a positive nature and I can afford what I need to afford. You do that, that that cash flow becomes excess at times that you don't need it. You start saving that and you build wealth. Let's talk about those billionaires for a second, that, that top 10%. You take a look at high net worth investors. How are they allocated? How are their investments allocated, right? Where, where do they have their money? It's usually private it, business, right? Majority of it is the business they own. Big chunk of it is, is either the real estate they own that they live in or they own rental properties, et cetera. Uh, they own a lot of bonds because bonds have guaranteed payments coming back on them and the principal comes back at maturity, so there's no risk. They have about 20% of their, of their money in equities. That's the risk part of their portfolio, but it's a very small amount. 
what does the average retail investor have of their net worth in stocks, right? It's like 80% of their, their investable assets is in cash, not in these other assets. We talked about before, people don't buy bonds. They don't, you know, they don't invest in real estate. You know, so if you want to be a high net worth individual, start investing like a high net worth individual. Build things. Uh, a guy was on the, uh, the internet the other day made a beautiful, sum this up beautifully, and I'll, I'll end with this point. He says, if you want to be poor, invest in liabilities. What's a, what, what does he mean by that? Buy cars that depreciate, have credit card debt, buy things that don't have a residual value. If you want to be rich, you invest in assets. And you buy assets that go up in price and have a residual value. What is a residual value? It means it can't go to zero no matter how bad things get. Can't go to zero. What can't go to zero? Treasury bonds and real estate. And, and so, so this is why you see high net, worthers, high net worth people invested that way. And stocks make up a very small percentage of the portfolio. Why? Because they can go to zero, folks. They can. And it happens. So you can be a victim or you can be a winner. Take, take your choice, but you've got a choice to make and you can start doing it now. Now I'm finished. All right, great. And yeah, my attempts of getting us uh, out under two hours are, are evaporating uh, before my eyes here, but that's okay. Um, I'm out. I'm done. So I, I, I am wrapping it up here, folks. Um, so first off, Lance, I agree, agree a thousand percent. And I appreciate you you bringing it back to the positive. Um and uh, I think what's really important to underscore there, and again, folks, if you've made it this far in the video, um, again, this is why we do these videos, which is as much as we talk about all the reasons for concern here, the opportunity in the story is at the individual level, right? Is, is, is you know, we're all not, you know, doomed to suffer the same fate here um, because we are hopefully paying attention, we're looking at the data and we are making intelligent decisions um, based upon that data. Um, we have the ability to change our outcome, right? So we, we can hopefully engineer much more positive outcomes than the people that are not paying attention right now. And that's that's really, Lance, what I was worried about or worrying about with that, that meme of the pizza is, you know, the people watching this channel, sadly, are a minority. They're the proactive minority that's getting out there to self-educate, to not just swallow what they're being told on CNBC or, you know, the... the the, the whitewashed business news at night on the networks. Um, and, and so those people who are sort of sleepwalking into what's coming, I think sadly, most of them are gonna get taken out to the woodshed and it's gonna be a complete utter surprise to them. Um, but the folks that are paying attention, yeah, they've got the ability to chart a much different destiny. And I appreciate your your uh, victim and I can't remember what, what the other word you use is, but my wife who's a therapist, a marriage family therapist, uses the same thing. It's you choose to be a hero or a victim. And it's not just related to your money. It's sort of your whole approach to life. Um, you can you can basically chart the same path, but your your outlook, whether it's a victim outlook or a hero outlook, totally changes your quality of life, right? Um, and so anyways, maybe that's something we can talk about more in future uh, future discussions. Um, but I appreciate you putting it out here because that's right. You know, we we you know, if, if you're somebody who is going to look at, at at everything that's coming as, you know, an injury that the universe is placing on yourself, no matter what happens, you're going to be pretty unhappy. Um, you put you put yourself in the hero mindset, all of a sudden doors start opening a lot of opportunities that you might otherwise miss because you're so tunnel visioned in your pessimism, you know, you start being able to see those and take advantage of those. All right, well, look, um, we'll have to end it at that, folks. Thanks so much for making it this long. Um, 
just a reminder, uh, I think we've probably given a zillion reasons in this video why working with a partnership of financial advisor um, makes so much sense right now. If you've got a good one, great, stick with them. If you don't or want feedback, uh, second opinion perhaps of one who does understand all these macro issues, maybe even Lance and uh, his team at RAA themselves, just go to Wealthion.com, fill out the short form there. We'll set you up with a free consultation um, with the right advisor. It doesn't cost anything. There's no commitment to work with them. It's just a public service. Um, if you enjoy these long and getting longer discussions between Lance and I every week, please do us a favor, support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And no matter what happens in the markets in the overall economy next week lance and i will commit to being here next week making sense for it for you as best we can lance brother it's uh, been another great week everybody else thanks so much for watching